0: So Genesis 42, let me read to you the Lord's word from this passage. We'll be reading the whole chapter. I'll just try and think about some of the key points in here. We won't be looking at every word uh, for sure, but uh, you will want to remember some of the high points. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, "'No, it is the nakedness of the land you have come to see.' And they said, "'We are your servants, but we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more.' But Joseph said to them, "'It is as I said to you, you are spies.' On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound them before, uh, bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money uh, in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. But this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack, he said to his brothers, my money has been put back, here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling and saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, and we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take the grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they saw and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Jacob their father said to them, "You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. all this has come against me." Then Reuben said to his father, "Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you." But he said My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, may God now bless the reading and the preaching of his perfect and inspired word. You know as um one of the things that has uh, I've thought about a lot as I've preached through the book of Genesis is why is there so much emphasis given to Joseph he takes up a remarkable amount of of of, of narrative space in the book really more than just about anyone else and He's not the one through whom the Messiah is one day going to come. We would expect it. We might find it significant of all, if, if of all the brothers, Judah received the most treatment. But that's not the case. He does receive significant treatment that uh, perhaps we'll get to discussing sometime. But Joseph receives this treat, uh, such, a, such an emphasis. And why is that? Well, I think uh, the, the best answer that I can see is that Joseph shows us the kind of Savior that we need. And Joseph shows us the kind of Savior that one day will come through his brother, Judah. The fact is, it's not a straight shot from Judah to the Messiah. And the fact that the book of Genesis closes by taking us through Joseph shows us that Judah will have to be shaped into someone who has not yet entered into the scene, but he's a lot like Joseph. Uh, And what exactly do I mean by that? Well, Joseph, as far as the narrative has presented him, is quite different from his brother's. He has this sort of moral perfection to him, as it were. Joseph seems to be morally flawless in an absolutely astounding way. He's tested with respect to the seductive uh, entreaties of uh, Potiphar's wife. And unlike another man uh, who was... uh, who uh, listened to the beguiling voice of a woman who had already allied herself with a serpent, this one proves to be righteous. This one follows the word of the Lord, even to his own hurt, even as he is led down, down, down to become the suffering servant. Joseph, unlike the first Adam, uh, has the ability to faithfully discern between good and and evil. Remember, at the tree of the knowledge of good and the evil was the place where Adam was to discern between the good word of the Lord and, and that which was not the good word of the Lord, the evil word of Satan. And yet he confused the two. Last time when I was here, I actually showed that there's an interplay in the previous chapter when Joseph stands before Pharaoh and interprets the dream. He talks about, he again and again talks about seven good years, and then he speaks about ugly cows and ugly ears which kind of belies the fact that it's the word uh, evil. (laughs) And he's distinguishing the good from the evil, unlike another man we have seen who does not do that faithfully. And therefore, because he is obedient to the point of death, as it were, God exalts him. This man, Joseph, the last figure in the book of Genesis, not only provides a contrast with the first man of the book, But he provides a preview of the coming final and last man, Jesus Christ. And so as Joseph is brought down, down, down in obedient humiliation until he is exalted, he he contrasts with the man of the past, but he also reveals the coming future Messiah, doesn't he? And we've already seen, and if you do remember, and if you don't remember, I'll just remind you, uh, Joseph Clearly, in the narrative functions as a savior to his people. We saw uh last time uh he he provides he is able to provide bread for his people from the famine bread he is able to give them, not just grain or food but bread. We'll come back to that point later and chapter forty two shows us in addition to that that Joseph will uh, in addition to bringing them bread. This chapter, which is before us today, is going to show that he's going to give them something else, something of great importance, something which they really need. Do you know what that is? Reconciliation. This is the big need that has been developing over the number of past chapters. Reconciliation. Beginning in chapter 42, Joseph begins testing his brothers. That really is what's happening. In verse 15, we read this. Joseph says, By this you shall be tested, the bringing up of Benjamin. And then verse 16, he says again, that your words, he says, Bring him that your words may be tested. Why is he testing them? Or in verse 11, uh, after he accuses them of being spies, he says, uh, they say to him, We're honest men. You notice how that comes back into the story and in this chapter so much time that they're honest. They're honest. These ones, the ones who uh, sold their brother into slavery, uh, who faked his death, who lied to his father about him. These ones who tell the same brother, uh, who, who take the same brother and betray him and threw him down into a pit. These are honest men. Well, are they honest men? Have they become honest men by this? Have the, has the Lord been working in their heart to change them? The next few chapters is going to reveal what's come of these men. And uh, let me put this another way. This chapter and those that follow are designed to show whether these sinners are, are now repentant or whether Joseph will lead them to become repentant through the testing that he brings to them. For true reconciliation can only come through true repentance. And so, yes, Joseph's tests are designed to call wayward sinners to repentance. Uh, Joseph, as a savior, not only provides bread for his people, but he is going to be the one who is working reconciliation for them. Sin, of course, destroys fellowship. It destroys fellowship with God, but it also destroys our fellowship with each other, doesn't it? And so we are in need of reconciliation. And through faith in the Lord's Messiah and through repentance, reconciliation is truly brought about. And so that's what we're going to consider, not just tonight, but as I come back uh, the first Sunday over the next few months, we'll see whether uh, how does this story of reconciliation go? Is it achieved? Is it brought out about and how so? Well, as we dive a little further more into chapter uh, 42, uh, the story, the, the text focuses first of all, not on the brothers, but on the father. Now, the father says in verse one, Jacob says to his sons, you know, uh, they're sitting around, there's no food. And he says, uh, why do you keep looking at each other? <laughs> Get up and go do something help us out act to save the family in light of the famine which is destroying us and then we read in verse 3 that Joseph sends down 10 excuse me Jacob sends down 10 of Joseph's brothers now later we will see these 10 brothers bowing down before him in the fulfillment of the the dream remember the dream back in 37 uh, that uh, Joseph dreamed that uh, the the stalks would rise up and fall down before him and then the sun and moon and um, and not ten, but eleven stars would bow down before him. Uh, that eleventh is interesting because ten go down, but we're we're interested in that eleventh, and the eleventh is gonna be important in the story. Benjamin is going to be uh, the one around whom ha- how we find out whether there's true repentance and reconciliation. Um, Now, what I want you to notice in this passage is that there are a number of reversals that take place. These reversals are very significant to understanding the the message and the theology of the the passage. Uh, The first one is this. Joseph, we are told in verse 7, Joseph sees them and recognizes them his recognizing them while they do not recognize him is a it's a kind of reversal of what we see in chapter 37 37 is where they see him coming from afar we are told they see him coming from afar they see him and they recognize him but now in this passage they stand right before him they see him but you know having eyes they don't see him they don't truly recognize who he is but things are reversed. He he truly does see them and recognize them. When they saw him in chapter 7, they saw him and devised evil for him. <laughs> when he sees them, he recognizes them, and he comes up with a plan, but it's not meant ultimately for their destruction. Now, why would they not recognize him? Well, first of all, we have been told in previous chapters that uh, his clothing is very different from when they last saw him. Of course, they didn't like his previous clothing very much, the robe that uh, that honored him from their father, and they stripped him of it. Uh, now he is arrayed in gold. He probably you know, had a shaved head, typical of an Egyptian in leadership. Uh, moreover, we are told in verse 23 that he doesn't even speak directly to them. He has an interpreter. And so that also would have thrown them off the, the, the trail. But I think probably the most important thing is something probably left out. They could never have dreamed that <laughs> this was Joseph. It would have, I mean, they could have, they, people see a lot of times what they expect to see. And they would have never, ever expected to have seen the one that they threw down to the pit, stripped of his robe, uh, sold into slavery, as now basically the second in command. Now what's interesting is that throughout this passage uh more and more their conscience really cries out against them uh about the guilt that they have. We'll we'll talk more about that. So that's the first uh reversal is uh being rec- being seen and recognized. First they saw and recognized him but now he's the one who sees and does the recognizing. A second uh a second reversal, which is uh, significant for the theology of the passage, is this. Joseph accuses his brothers of coming in to spy out the nakedness of the land. It was, language is used a number of times. And when he says, you've come in to spy out the nakedness of the land, of course what he's saying is, you're, you're searching out for weak spots, for weak points that you can exploit. Uh, if that's if they were spies, of course, that's what they would be doing. What's interesting, though, is that nakedness is kind of an ironic term here, right? Because um, not only does that take us back to the original situation of Adam and Eve, which, though um, it's not sin when they are naked, it's it's kind of a problem. They They were always intended to advance from that naked position to be royally robed and clothed in fuller communion with God, they never advanced beyond that nakedness. But the language of nakedness, it really recalls the sin of the brothers against Joseph. When they stripped him naked of the robe that he had been clothed with by his father and threw him naked down into the pit. Joseph, later, he stripped naked by Potiphar's wife, right? When he refuses to uh, lie with her and she holds on to his cloak and he just tries as hard as he can to get away and it doesn't matter if his robe is left in her hand. Of course, she uses that as evidence against him. Of course, we saw uh, in last the last chapter the problem of nakedness is solved for Joseph. Now he's, he's robed in a royal array by Pharaoh. He's given that garb by Pharaoh after having been stripped naked those several times. Of course, that, we have to say, is preparing us for the work of Jesus Christ, uh, who who came and in his uh, coming as a man, he is not yet royally robed with the Spirit, but he will be in his day of glorification. But anyways, the tables are now turned. Joseph's uh, accusations against his brothers about um, naked, or their accusation against him, excuse me, his accusation against them about nakedness, that exposes their sinful nakedness, their guilt. They are the one who are sinfully naked and in need of covering. And so uh, the questions are arising, will covering take place for them? Will these brothers evidence true repentance? Will there be reconciliation and a covering of their nakedness? That kind of reconciliation, uh, which is so necessary, again, because sin ruins the relationship that we have with God and that we have with one another. And all of Joseph's testing is designed not just to... He's not doing that because he's trying to get even with them. He is, he is working as an agent of God's redemption to bring about true reconciliation. Well, how does he do that, and how do they respond? We'll read, beginning in verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I fear God, if you are honest men, they claim that they were, <laughs> let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. The test consists in their bringing Benjamin to Joseph. Now, what's interesting here is to look at their initial response. What's their initial response it's seen in verses 21 and 22? Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. You know, can you imagine that? You know, they threw him down. He, he was, uh, poor Galeo is crying, probably weeping for them to help him out of there. And, uh, and they remember that. They would not listen to help him. And Reuben, of course, said, hey, I told you not to do all this. And you did it. You see, they are deeply, deeply aware of something. What is it that they are deeply, deeply aware of? Is their guilt. They really seem to dread this entire experience, don't they? Uh, But one thing we can think of here that is, I think, very useful is the the very same thing which is true of Joseph's brothers is true of of those who we know. It's true of your neighbor who may not uh, profess knowing Christ or even sense a need for Christ, they may be actively antagonistic against Christ. Nevertheless, your neighbor and my neighbor, they can protest all they want. But that will not change the fact that they are images of God, with God's law written on their heart, staring them in the face every day, saying, you've broken God's law. You are, in fact, guilty. And like Joseph's brothers, uh, your unbelieving friends and neighbors, they know that. Deep down, they know that. The real question is, uh, do we really believe that they know that deep down? How do we know that they know that? Well, God tells us so. Romans 1, let me read this to you. Here's what the unbeliever uh, knows. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How can you suppress something you don't know? You can't. Paul goes on, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's not just the case that he's he's giving all this information, but they're not receiving it. No, it's been clearly received. Ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so Paul says, So they are without excuse. And later in chapter 2, he talks about how the law of God is written on their hearts. And if we truly believe what God says, then we don't have to utterly dread speaking to our unbelieving friends and neighbors as if by, by trying to share the gospel with them, we had to kind of brainwash them to believe something that they didn't really know and they didn't really believe. I don't have to brainwash them because they really do know. (laughs) And they really do believe deep down that they are guilty. They know the truth. They don't know it in a saving way. But they know it in a way that gets through to their consciences that they are guilty before the Lord. And, And of course, they may try and hide it, but that is a great source of anxiety for people. And they need the gospel. And that's why it's the loving thing to do, to share it with them. But just knowing that, I think it emboldens us, it should embolden us. To to share the truth. It's not as if we have to convince people of something they don't know. They do know it. What these brothers do not realize is that this day, though they seem to dread it, oh, we found out our guilt, uh, it's really one of the best days of their life. It is, isn't it? It's one of the best days of their life. Because only after their sin is exposed and recognized can it be forgiven. Uh, this day that they dread it's not a terrible day for them after all it's it's a blessed day it's a good day when their sin is found out it's it's true of believers it's even true uh, true of unbelievers it's even true of believers it's especially true if uh, for believers uh, unbelievers and believers if if someone's hiding some deep dark sin and believers do do that sometimes look at king david for example um he committed awful sin. He murdered a man because he coveted his wife, and he committed adultery with his wife, and he covered it all up. David may have thought the worst day of his life was in when the prophet David, uh, prophet Nathan, showed up and, and said, "You're the man." <laughs> but that was one of the best days of his life. And you read Psalm 51, and 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 he acknowledges that that Lord, you you found out my sin. And forgive me. So indeed, this is one of the best days in Joseph's brother's life. Because the Lord's servant, Joseph, is bringing these wayward sinners to a place where they can see the Savior. The Savior that God has provided. In this case, uh, that's pictured through Joseph. The suffering and exalted servant. And in looking to the Savior. In looking to the one that they had betrayed. And had sent to the dungeon only looking to him and acknowledging their sin against him and accepting the life that comes through his hand in true repentance and faith only then will they escape the guilt that's been hounding them all this time of course the same is true for you and for me if you are ever to be delivered from a guilty conscience which hounds every one of the human race. It can only be as you and I look to the one that the Lord has raised up to suffer for us, to die for us. And as you and I, just like Joseph's brothers, um, we won't even seek after him on our own. The brothers weren't seeking this repentance. Joseph goes after them. He seeks to draw them to repentance. There's a kind of of a real, uh, if I can put it this way, a latent Calvinism, here in this passage, uh, just like uh, Joseph's brothers, uh, someone ultimately, God must ultimately must lead you and I to repentance. God must lead us to see our sin, to see our need for Christ. They did not seek out that; they weren't seeking out Joseph. God sought them out through Joseph, and Joseph sought their repentance and their reconciliation. And that's the wonderful news of the gospel. Jesus comes to seek and to save those who are lost. He comes to his own, even when his own do not recognize him. He still works in their lives to bring them to a place where they acknowledge their sin and uh, they confess their need for him. Perhaps... Uh, uh, that might even be a need for for um, for us here today. Well, it's always a need. If not initially, then continually to look to Christ. We cannot gain uh, life from our own hand, but only from the hand of God's Savior. That becomes uh, increasingly apparent in a very interesting way in this in this uh, story over the next couple of chapters through the theme of money. Uh, the, the money. Uh, which the brothers bring to purchase food to save them, is again and again returned to their sacks, their brother, whom they betrayed, does not accept their money. It's a very striking feature of the narrative that their money keeps being returned to them, and um again, when I preached chapter forty one back I know it was a couple months ago, I said that um, Joseph will provide bread bread to satisfy when there is famine. And ultimately, this chapter in Genesis leads us to Exodus 16, where God provides bread from heaven. And that passage, of course, leads us to the one to John uh, chapter 6, where Jesus says that he is the bread come from heaven. But what's in between Exodus 16 and John chapter 6? Well, besides the rest of the Old Testament, it's that that passage in the book of Isaiah. Listen to this, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Of course, again, this shows us the gospel. Uh, God, in seeking to bring about our reconciliation and provide for us, won't accept your money or my money. And that's why when we have the offering, for example, we're not trying to purchase or win over God's affection. That's a matter of thankfulness and love to him for what he has done for us. Well, I'm going to close out the sermon today without dealing with a number of matters which are still in the text, but I'll, I'll pick those back up again the next time I come down here. But the thing that we need to, I'll leave you uh, thinking about is this. Does the testing that Joseph enters into with his brothers, does it ultimately pay off? Does it, does it bring about and affect true uh, repentance and reconciliation in their lives? Well, uh, come back again and, and, and you'll see. But I hope you do see. I hope you do see right now that the kind of Savior that God does raise up For you and for me, he is the Savior, like Joseph, who suffers humiliation and is faithfully obedient in the midst of that. He is exalted and royally robed. He is the one who draws his people to himself, who pursues them in loving, uh, reconciling, granting them loving uh, reconciliation through repentance and faith. That is the Savior that you need and that I need. Let's go to the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Uh, We thank you for Joseph, uh, who is a picture of the great reconciler who who suffers for his people, who is exalted on their behalf, who is royally robed, uh, who who works salvation by bringing us, uh, drawing us, to himself. We thank you for that Savior who works in our lives, who is so patiently tender and kind to us that even when we won't acknowledge our sin before him, though we know in the depths of our heart we are guilty, that he he continues calling, speaking, and his call and his speaking are effectual. In other words, the ones who he seeks, he truly does find and he truly does bring to himself and be thankful. We are thankful that if we are yours, it is because you have caused us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. Uh, we pray that you would indeed fill our hearts with his love as we see the good things in the scripture passage. May, be, may we be drawn to love and serve you in greater ways uh, here in this place and in the other places where you place us uh, in our lives.